Chapter 18 of The Inner Shrine by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 18 It was, perhaps, the knowledge that Dorothea could play the game that enabled Derrick, during the rest of the summer, to play it himself. This he did without flinching, finding strength in the fact that, as time went on, Dorothea seemed to enter into his plans and submit to his judgment. The first few weeks of pallor and silence having passed, she resumed her accustomed ways, and, as far as he could tell, grew cheerful. Always having credited her with common sense, he was pleased now to see her make use of it in a way of which few girls of nineteen would have been capable. She accepted his surveillance with so much docility that by the time they returned to town in the autumn, he was able to congratulate himself on his success. On her part, Dorothea carried out his instructions to the letter. Notwithstanding the opening of the season and the renewal of the usual gaieties, she lived quietly, accepting few invitations and rarely going into society at all, except under her father's wing. On those accidental occasions when Carly Wappinger came within their range of vision, it was only as a distant ship drifts into sight at sea, to drift silently away again. If Dorothea perceived him, she gave no sign. It was clear to Derrick that her spurt of rebellion was over, and that her little experience had done her no harm. The name of Wappinger being tacitly ignored between them, he could only express his pleasure in the results he had achieved by an extravagant increase of Dorothea's allowance and gifts of inappropriate jewels. It would have taken a more weather-wise person than he to guess that behind this domestic calm the storm was brewing. The first intuition of threatening events came to Mrs. Wappinger. "'I've seen nothing and heard nothing,' she declared in her emphatic way to Diane. "'But I know something is going on.' That was in September. They sat in the shade of the cool, flag-paved pergola at Waterwild, Mrs. Wappinger's place on Long Island. The tea-table stood between them, and they lounged in wicker chairs. Framed by marble pillars and festooned from above by vines drooping from the roof, there was a view of terraced lawns descending towards the sea. Between the slightly overcrowded urns and statues, there were bright dashes of colour, here of dahlias in full bloom, there of reddening gardens of Ampelopsis or Virginia creeper. It was what Mrs. Wappinger called an off-day, otherwise she would not have had a Diane at Waterwild. In her loyalty toward the deserted woman, she seized those opportunities when Carly was away, and she was certain of having no other guests, to have the poor thing down for the day and give her a good meal. Not that people occupied themselves with Diane or her affairs. Her place in the hurrying, scrambling social throng had been so unobtrusive that now that she had no longer filled it, she was easily forgotten. Among the few who paid her the tribute of recollection, there was a generally received impression that Derek Prune, having discovered her relations with the Marquis de Pionville, relations which, so they said, had been well known in Paris in the days when she was still someone, had dismissed her from her position in his household. That was natural enough, and there was no further reason for remembering her. Having disappeared into the limbo of the unfortunate, she was as far beyond the mental range of those who retained their blessings as souls that have passed are out of sight of men and women who still walk the earth. For this very reason she called out in Mrs. Wappinger that motherly good nature which was only partially warped by the ambition for social success. 
On more than one of her off days, she had lured Diane out of her refuge in University Place, treating her with all the kindness she could bestow, without causing disparaging comment upon herself. On the present occasion, she was the more desirous of her company because of the fact that, as she expressed it herself, she had sniffed something going on. As I tell you, she repeated, I've heard nothing and seen nothing. I've just sniffed it. If you'd have asked me how, I couldn't explain it to you any more than I can say how I get the scent of this climbing heliotrope. But I do get it. I do know something is in the wind, more than what is told to you and I. One can only hope that it will be nothing foolish, Diane murmured guardedly. It will be something foolish, Mrs. Morpinger declared, and you may take my word for it. Derek Prune can't arrogate to himself the powers of the Lord above any more than we can. If he thinks he can stop young blood from running, he'll find out he's wrong. It was the first mention of his name that Diane had heard in many weeks, and at the sound her hand trembled in such a way that she was obliged to put down untasted the cup she had half-raised to her lips. He's not an unkind man, she found voice to say. He's only a mistaken one. He has one of those natures capable of dealing magnificently with great affairs, but helpless in the trivial matters of every day. He's like the people who see well at a distance, but become confused of the objects right under their eyes. And the farther you keep away from that man, the better the view he'll take of you. It's what I'd say to Carly if he asked for my advice. Does that mean, Diane ventured to inquire, that you don't want him to marry Dorothea? I certainly do not. If there were no other reason, she's the sort of girl to make me put one foot into the grave, whether I want to or no. And it stands to reason that I don't want to be squelched one hour before my time. Naturally. But I fancy you'd find her a sweeter girl than you might suppose. So she may be, dear. But I've spent too much money on Carly to wish to see him force his way into a family where he isn't wanted. This was the text of Mrs. Woffinger's discourse, not only on the present occasion, but on the subsequent off days when Diane was induced to visit Waterwild. Whatever is going on, Reggie Bradford's in it, she confided to Diane some few weeks later. Is that the fat young man with the big laugh? Yes, and one of the greatest catches in New York. Carly tells me he's wild about Madeline Grimston, and I can see for myself that Mrs. Bayford is playing him against that Frenchman. She'll get the title if she can, but if not, she'll fall back on the money. It's a pretty safe alternative, Diane smiled, making an effort to speak without betraying her feelings. Reggie is a good-natured boy, Mrs. Morpinger pursued, but a regular water-pipe. If you want to get anything out of him, you've only got to turn the faucet. It's just as well that he is, because whatever Carly is up to, Reggie knows. And what Reggie knows, Marion Grimston knows. If ever you see her, Oh, but I don't. Not now. That's a pity. If you did, you could pump her. I'm afraid I'm not much good at that sort of thing. Well, I am when I get a chance. I'm bound to find out somehow. There are more ways of killing a cat than by giving it poison. A few weeks later still, Mrs. Wappinger informed Diane that Dorothea Prune was not happy. The Thoroughgoods told the Louds, she explained, and the Louds told me. Her father thinks she's given in to him. But she hasn't, not an inch. He keeps her like a jailer, and she acts like a convict, always with an eye open for some way of escape. That man no more understands women than he does making pie. 
I've always noticed that the really strong men really do. There's almost invariably something petty about a man to whom a woman isn't a puzzle and a mystery. If it comes to a puzzle and a mystery, I don't know where you'd find a greater one than Derek Prune himself, after the way he's acted and treated people. Diane flushed, but kept her emotions sufficiently under control to be able to follow her usual plan of straightforward speaking. If you mean me, Mrs. Watbinger, I wanted to say that Mr. Prune has done nothing for which I can blame him. He was placed in a situation with which only a very subtle intelligence could have dealt, and I respect him the more for not having had it. It's generally the man who is most competent in his own domain, who is most likely to blunder when he gets into the woman's. And I, for one, would rather have him do it. I've had to suffer because of it, and so has Dorothea. And yet that doesn't make me like it less. No, I dare say not, Mrs. Wobbinger responded sympathetically. Mr. Wobbinger himself was just such a man as that. He put through a deal that would make Wall Street shiver. But he understood my woman's nature, just about as much as old Tiger there, wagging his tail on the grass, follows the styles in bonnets. Only I'll tell you what, Mrs. Edith, it's for men like that that God created sensible, capable wives like you and me, and they ought to have them. This scene admitting of little discussion, Diane did not pursue it. But she went away from Waterwild with a deepened sense of Derrick's need of her, as well as of Dorothea's. She could so easily have helped them both that the enforced impotence was a new element in her pain. To walk the town in search of work to which she was little suited, when that which no one but herself could accomplish had to remain undone, became, during the next few weeks, the most intolerable part of the irony of circumstance. The wifely, the maternal qualities of her being, of which she had never been strongly conscious till of late, awoke in response to the need that drew them forth, only to be blighted by denial. The inactivity was the harder to endure because of the fact that, as autumn passed into early winter, there came a period when all her little world seemed to have dropped her out of sight. There were no more off days at Waterwild, and Miss Lucilla's occasional letters from Newport ceased. Between her mother-in-law and herself, after a few painful attempts at intercourse, there had fallen an equally painful silence. Even her two or three pupils fell away. From the papers she learned that one or another of those for whom she cared was back in town again. She walked in the chief thoroughfares in the hope of meeting some of them, but chance refused to favour her. In the dusk of the early descending November and December twilights, she passed their houses, watching the warm glow of the nights within, against which, now and then, a shadow that she could almost recognise would pass by. She could have entered at Miss Lucilla's door, or Mrs. Wappinger's. But a strange shyness, the shyness of the unfortunate, had taken hold of her, and she held back. In the meantime, she was free to watch, with sad eyes and sadder spirit, the great city, reversing the processes of nature, awakened from the torpor of the genial months into its winter life. No one knew better than herself that thrill of excited energy with which those born with the city instinct return from the acquired taste for mountain, seaside and farm, to enter once more the maze of purely human relationships. It was a moment with which her own active nature was in sympathy. She liked to see the blinds being raised in the houses, 
and the barricading doors taken down. She liked to see the vehicles begin to crowd one another in the streets, and the pedestrians on the pavement wear a brisker air. She liked to see the shop windows brighten with colour, and the great public gathering spots let in and let out their throngs. She responded to the quickening animation with the spontaneity of one all ready to take her part, till the thought came that a part had been refused to her. It was with a curious sensation of being outside the range of human activities that, during those days of timid, futile, looking for employment, she roamed the busy thoroughfares of New York. As time passed, she ceased to think much about her need of sympathetic fellowship in her anxiety to get work. She wrote advertisements and answered them. She applied at schools and offices and shops. She came down to seeking any humble drudgery which would give her the chance to live. It was not until one day in early December that the last flicker of her hope went out. Chance had made her pass at midday along the pavement opposite one of the great restaurants. Lifting her eyes instinctively towards the group of well-dressed people on the steps, she saw that Mrs. Bayford and Marian Grimston were going in, accompanied by Reggie Bradford and the Marquis de Bionville. She had heard little or nothing of them during the last four empty months, but it was plain now that the lovers were agreed and her own cause abandoned. Up to this moment, she had not realised how tenaciously she had clung to the belief that the proud, high-souled girl would yet see justice done her, and now she had deserted her, like the rest. For the first time during her years of struggle, she felt absolutely beaten, beaten so thoroughly that it would be useless to renew the fight. She had been on her way to see a lady who had advertised for a nursery governess, but she had no strength left with which to face the interview. In the winter garden of the restaurant, Mrs. Bayford was purring to her guests. Reggie Bradford was whispering to Miss Grimston, and the Marquis de Bienville was ordering the wines, while Diane was wandering blindly back to the poor little room she called her home, there to lie down and allow her heart to break. But hearts do not break at the command of those who own them, and when she had moaned away the worst of her pain, she fell asleep. When she awoke, it was already growing dark, and the knocking at her door, which aroused her, was like a call from the peace of dreams to the desolation of reality. When she turned on the night, she received from the hands of the waiting servant that which had become a most rare visitant in the blackness of her life, a note. The address was in a sprawling hand which she recognised. What was written within was more sprawling still. For heaven's sake, come to me at once. I expect it has happened, and I don't know what to do. The motor will wait and bring you. Clara Hoppinger End of chapter 18